Welcome to Well Good Movies, the podcast which asks which movies are well worth watching and remembering for all time. Every episode, we discuss a different piece of film history to decide if it should make its way into our movie vault. Filled with questions, trivia, and crazy challenges, it's the perfect way to deep dive into a myriad of movies. But don't just take my word for it. Here's a glimpse of what to expect in today's episode. David being frustrated at the fact that Zoom flips the camera did painstakingly make sure that the question mark was done so that our guests would see the question mark the right way round. I see it the wrong way round. I see it the wrong way round. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is oh, the yeah. No, oh because I think it flips it for us, but not for them. Oh, for God's sake. Right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Are you not entertained? I'll be back. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Well, good movies. Hello, 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 and welcome to Well Good Movies, the podcast that asks which movies are well worth watching and deserve to be remembered for all time. I'm your host, David Osger, looking to execute my wrath on my envious co-host, Craig McDonald. Oh, that is not the way round I thought you were uh, going for that one. If you'd let me finish, Craig. Oh, sorry. Or should that be the other way round? Oh, there we go. <laughs> anyway, hello, Craig. How are you? I feel better now that that obvious mistake has been rectified. <laughs> Craig, how are you today? Yeah, I'm doing all right. Um, a little bit scarred, but committed any sins. <laughs> why? Why would I happily give that evidence <laughs> on a recorded platform? And uh, how are you feeling as we start our year of movies officially now? I mean, it's an interest. It's an interesting place to be in. Um, I'm still sort of uh, also dealing with uh, a lot of the Oscar buzz because we've now had those nominations, and uh, it, it's really weird that sequels seem to own the Oscars at the moment. Yeah. I'm just like, what is this timeline? Yeah, and I didn't realize that if you are nominated for writing and it's a sequel, that it goes into adapted, adapted. screenplay. Because I was like really confused by that by first. And a few other people on Twitter were as well. So I'm glad I wasn't the only one. Yeah, I know for a fact that uh, one of our guests also messaged me to ask about this as well. So it's definitely a common thing that people were not sure of. So uh, over to those who are joining us this week. So first of all, it is Quizmaster and previous one-time host of this podcast, Ed Mason. Hello, Ed. Hello. Hello. Just come straight back from work, straight into recording this. Looking forward to having a chat about a nice, lovely little film. You, you could have said, oh, I've come straight from the Endgame special, but we have had an episode in, in the middle of that, so that wouldn't quite work. That but... and like two months. <laughs> I've been cryogenically frozen for the past two months. So actually, yes, this, this is my work. That's, that's what I was referring to. And uh, Ed, we talked there about uh, Oscar contenders, etc. So have you got a favorite film from the past year? Like whether it be something that is up for an Oscar, maybe something that's been forgotten? Yeah, so it probably is. It's actually one of the... Um sequel best adapted screenplays that Craig alluded to earlier which was a uh, glass onion which i was fairly sad it only got that nomination i guess but i'm happy it got at least something because i thought it was a very good film i watched it uh, twice in the cinema in that week it was very upset when i couldn't when it didn't work out for me to be able to go to watch it a third time and i watched it a couple of times on netflix since then yeah it's a great choice and i've had a few people who i've recommended especially who haven't seen knives out i've said you know watch knives out then watch like glass onion and 
I've been glad that so many people have sort of come away from it and been like, yeah, I really enjoy both. And some people have been like, oh, you know, it, it's hard to top the first one. But I think everyone's in agreement that, you know, the mystery and fun of it is still just as good even if it, it doesn't have quite the sort of originality that you're always going to have in in the first one because it's the first one that does it essentially yeah um because obviously in in a way it's like not an independent film in that sense but it's it's more of a sequel which tries to do bigger and better than the first one did which in some respects it does in some respects maybe it's the same sort of plot but you know there's only so many plots in the world right i'm not going to you know say it's a bad film just because it's been done before lots of things have been done before but you can still do them very well I mean, it also was, it did have the benefit of just utilizing Benoit Blanc as the actual true detective that he's meant to be. Obviously, the the thing with the first one is that we think he might be a little bit incompetent. We hope he might be a little bit incompetent this time. We know what he's capable of, and it's just actually seeing how he do, does it. Yeah. And actually, I think one of my favorite scenes is watching him completely destroy the murder mystery in the film to the point that they're all <laughs> just there like, well, what do we do with the rest of the weekend now? Like... <laughs> Yeah, it has some great moments. And like I said, it's the fact that it, it's able to sort of, fin- you know, like end in such an effective way like the first one is. And it's got some fantastic performances. So if you haven't checked it out, do go check out Glass Onion. It's on Netflix. So also joining us this week, uh, he's also been on before. It is literary analyst and podcaster Jake Hart. Hello, Jake. Hello, hello. And uh, in theme with this episode, who I am means absolutely nothing. Oh, <laughs> I'm scared. Yeah, how how are you doing? <laughs> are you in a murderous mood? Or <laughs> no, no, I'm in a, in a more of a Somerset mood of trying to understand these people of why they do the things that they do. No, I, I'm good, man. I'm good. I uh, was very excited when you asked me to come on to talk about this film as it's one of my all-time favorites. Um, you know, it puts me in a dark, depressing mood. So yeah, lovely film to talk about today. Well, in contrast to that, I quite like the idea of a Somerset mood. It just sounds quite like nice, chilled vibes. Not like a summer mood, a Somerset. Somerset mood. It's like a Lana Del Rey song or something. Yeah, Yeah, but I just keep thinking of the place Somerset, um, which is not really a vibe I sort of (laughs) deal with that well. I think that's what I'm thinking. It's like, oh, British summer mood. (laughs) So um, I found the contrast as well. When I did a bit of rewatching of this film, I found the contrast really funny as I just watched the latest episode of The Bad Batch on Disney+. Plus. And that tone change was quite different to adjust to. Well, you know, think how me and Niall felt when we watched episode three and then four of the Bad <laughs> yes. Batch back to back. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to be talking about contrast, what I, I went from watching Seven right into watching Coronation Street. That was a bit of a mood whiplash. Granted, it was an episode where there was a, a terrorist attack. Yeah, so. so, As I asked Ed, what, what is your pick of uh, your sort of favourite film of the past year? Um, well, I actually haven't. I didn't even because I've been unplugged from social media for a while. I didn't even know the Oscar nominations were out until my partner just yesterday said, "Oh, the Oscar nominations out." I was like, oh, okay. I haven't had a chance to check them yet on who's been nominated for what, um, apart from a couple that I've seen. My favorite film of last year was probably Everything Everywhere, but I'm not gonna say that one because everybody said that one, um, rightly so because it is a fantastic film. Um, I'm gonna go a bit more obscure. Uh, something that I think has maybe been slightly forgotten uh, and I don't think has got any award contenders and that's The Northman. Oh, uh, yes, of course, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's a very certain type of niche of film. Like, um, seeing some of like the reactions to it, I kind of thought that maybe some people expected like Thor from the Marvel Universe <laughs> going into it or something like that. Uh, but the reason that I loved it so much that it truly felt like one of those epic Norse sagas come to life um, it was very poetic in the way it's structured and 
uh, the cat. I mean, it was basically Hamlet, but with Vikings. I love my my Norse uh, mythology and and Viking lore and stuff like that. So that's why it's up for me. And I thought Robert Eggers did a fantastic job uh, directing that film, like set design, mood, atmosphere, the music, everything. I thought it was absolutely phenomenal. I think if you haven't checked it out, people check it out. So yeah, well, we can't wait to chat to you both about today's film. Uh, But before that, a reminder to those listening uh, that you can rate, review and interact with us wherever you're listening to us. And you can interact with us on social media like Instagram and Twitter, where you can find us at Well Good Movies. So please do give us a thumbs up, a review. It all really helps us uh, to grow the podcast and we can speak to you guys and hear what you want to hear in the future in terms of films and what goes in the movie vault, etc. So on with today's show anyway. So first up, the film we are discussing today, we've uh, already alluded to it. But uh, Craig, for those who didn't catch our Endgame special, or for those who just need a reminder, what is it we're discussing and what led us here today? So after the victory of the Cocaine Cubs, uh, they got the chance to spin a wheel that we did not give a proper name to, so we will not try and name it. But essentially, every time uh, all of last year a guest's choice didn't get chosen, it basically went into a massive potluck sort of wheel. So we had all of the film choices uh, of various people, uh, and we gave the winners of Johan and Kate the opportunity to spin the wheel up to three times to see which film they got. So they didn't like their first two choices, so they gambled for the final choice, and they ended up with a film that they did like and did want us to discuss. So we are discussing today Seven. Do you like what you do for a living? These things you see? You have to wear blinders sometimes. Most times. Detective William Somerset is looking for a way out. You're retiring. Six more days and you're all the way gone. So how long have you lived here? Too long. Detective David Mills is looking for a way in. We'll be spending every waking hour together from now until the time I leave. I'll show you who your friends and enemies are. Look, I will come inside five years. Not here. Now, they're caught in a game. No fingerprints. No witnesses of any kind. Nope. About the only thing we know about that guy right now is he's totally insane. Where the price of sin is death. There are seven deadly sins. Gluttony. You're going to come take a look at this. Greed. No one touches anything. Sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy. Seven. You can expect five more of these. Body was found on Tuesday morning. I hate this city. We're going to get who did this. This will be the very definition of swift justice. There are two more bodies, two more victims. This guy is methodical, exacting, and worst of all, patient. He's laughing at us. <laughs> he had a gun. He's two murders away from completing his masterpiece. Ah! Finish it. Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, Gwyneth Paltrow. Have you ever seen anything like this? No. Seven. (laughs) 
So this came out in 1995. Uh, the summary is two detectives, a rookie and a veteran, hunt a serial killer who uses the seven deadly sins as his motives. Uh, this is a very famous film, which is directed by David Fincher. Uh, writing uh, credits have been given to Andrew Kevin Walker. Uh, in terms of your cast, this is very well known again for having Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, <clears throat> A certain actor called Kevin Spacey, uh, which <laughs> we will try to mention the name of as little as possible due to events. Jo- John John Doe. John Doe, yeah. Uh, yes, the unknown yeah. person. That's what Now known as John Doe from now on. Also starring Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, and then you got a whole host of uh, different actors, etc. playing cops and dead bodies and all sorts. Um, I enjoyed seeing Arlie uh, Ermey as uh, the police captain in this. And uh, yeah, just a, a whole host of uh, American actors, uh, which you might recognize, including, I think, John C. McGinley, if anyone is a Scrubs fan, which uh, which is a fun one. Like I said, come out in 1995, very well known as a kind of like famous horror mystery thriller, kind of one of the big sort of David Fincher films. Uh, when you look at his sort of filmography, it's very much like a similar vibe in terms of the other films that he's gone for. In recent years, he's become more of a, like an awards darling in some ways you know he's had films like mank gone girl girl with the dragon tattoo the curious case of benjamin button but then in similar vibes to this you know he's also had films like zodiac uh but also working with brad pitt in terms of things like fight clubs so obviously a big director one which we haven't sort of talked about before um he also did the social network as well another kind of awards uh contender which uh, i think won best uh, screenplay so yeah this is really famous for that kind of impact that it had on horror a lot of the stars in it so we look forward to discussing it today and seeing what everyone's thoughts are about it we've already alluded to the fact that this is a favorite of our guests ed like you wanted to join us for this discussion because you said it inspired you to buy saw <laughs> but for those who don't know at home what what is your connection to saw and to films like seven I mean, it's it's just a thing. I think I may have said in the podcast before how Saw is one of my sort of favourite films. Not saying it's one of the best films; it's just one of my personal favourites, and just in that franchise. And whilst sort of later films sort of get more torture porny, where it's uh, more visceral in what it's showing, I think like maybe the first couple of films are very similar to to Seven. And I originally bought it in the first instance. Like Seven was the first I saw in this genre, sort of led to my interest in the whole sort of you know genre and the themes behind it and like i i, I vividly remember if, if if you want an indication as to how long ago this was it was in woolworths that i vividly remember sort of randomly picking up saw from the sort of dvd shelf and you know sight unseen i hadn't heard of it before and it just having a line there which was if you enjoyed seven uh, then this goes up to eight which is yes a very trite a very obvious sort of thing to say i think when there was a, a sequel to seven being mooted they thought they might call it eight um thankfully that never happened but hey it worked it got me to pick up saw and this uh you know that, that series i've enjoyed ever since it all started with seven so here i am today and uh jake what about yourself what's your kind of relationship with this film and your your history with it yeah this seven is one of those hugely influential films for me in the sense it came around i first saw it around the era where i was going to the teenage years i was rebelling i was going through like my metalhead darker gothic phase and i just wanted to consume everything that was like horror and dark and all that sort of stuff so that's why i was drawn to like the matrix and underworld uh, and then this popped up 
Uh, and this was really my sort of first, well, not first exposure, because I would say Batman is my first exposure to like mystery, detective, noir sort of thriller types. Uh, but this took it to another level of how graphic it could be. Uh, and especially with some it took of it the, to an eight. <laughs> well, it took it to an eight. Yes, I was trying not to go to there. Um, uh, but yeah, um, and some of the themes that it was talking about, it just completely hooked me on this genre of. I think it's classified as like neo noir because it's not quite noir, but you know it has the mm. neo is like this new sort of version of it. Um, and since then, I've been fascinated with that sort of genre of that mystery neo noir angle. Um, obviously still love my classics from the noir phase, but I'm more attached to the neo-noir due to some of like the imagery it uses and the aesthetics that neo-noir tends to go, goes for, um, very linked, closely linked to cyberpunk. I think, I think the two genres can mesh quite well. Um, but it all started from watching seven and movies like underworld and the matrix for me. It was that sort of same era, probably when I was like 14, 15. What else would you say then is like when you think of the neo-noir, what, what are the examples or ones that come straight to your mind? Oh, instantly I think of two Ryan Gosling films. So you have uh, Blade Runner 2049, which I thought mm. was a good mixture of neo-noir with sci-fi. And then a uh, controversial film about another Ryan Gosling film, uh, Only God Forgives, which is I think is a fascinating film. Not sure if I like it or I dislike it, but I think it's a fascinating watch. Um but yeah, those are the two that come off straight off my head of what I inspired. And then and then I, I've failed at the challenge, I'm afraid, Dave, the one I told mm. you uh, to, uh, to, yeah. to, to talk about this film without mentioning the recent The Batman. Um, that is, as you can see, is a hugely influential film on that The Batman that we just saw last year. Uh, and Matt Reeves was very outspoken about that as this being a huge influence on him. Yeah, because that's what I think is interesting, again, is when you think about like, oh, other films like this without talking about maybe the other David Fincher ones. If you look at IMDb, then it's just obviously a lot of it is based on what has come out recently. So you just look at like more crime picks and it, you know, has Glass Onion, which has come out recently. And then you got The Godfather, but then The Batman and then Violent Night <laughs> and John Wick and then things like Pulp Fiction. Mm. But, um, but you see, but that, I don't look at any of those as the same as the type no, of they're uh, really uh, not they're really apart from the batman gets closest and even then it, the, bat, the batman deals with similar themes at the beginning but the second half of the film of the batman is very different to the second half of the film of seven so yeah that that's what's weird is you look again when it says more like this you've got fight club silence of the lambs inception pulp fiction forest gump shutter island django and chain the green mile shawshank redemption dark night so again it's like you're just going off kind of like famous movies almost like cult movies it doesn't seem to be like kind of other films within this genre so ed do you think that that kind of speaks to like the uniqueness of this film do you think it's within its own kind of genre or do you think that like saw it did kind of like inspire a generation of like more horror detective type films i think yeah there's there's not there's probably not that many ways that i think directors have been able to or, or wanted to like try and directly do it like maybe you've got you know as, as you said saw like you've got jigsaw who's also trying to punish people and it doesn't quite matter as much whether they live or die um maybe that's the only thing i can think of that's very similar but yeah just the general themes i think it did sort of start probably with, with or around seven yeah it's definitely i think the, the film that starts the idea of introspective violence 
Because I think the thing why I don't agree that a lot of those films that IMDb listed as sort of related just aren't related is because they just violence for the sake of, you know, violence in terms of a goal. Whereas I think the films that sort of do link a bit more, and I think that's why the Batman, I think, is a great example of a follow-on from this, is that the actual violence caused from this is because it's trying to achieve something more borderline philosophical, more psychotic sort of criminal introspection. And I think that's what actually just makes them more more interesting. Because realistically, there isn't that much violence in this film. It's violent things have happened. It's the aftermath and then we of just, the violent things. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I think there's something like Violent Night being <laughs> yeah. related is just clearly not the case. That's why even like the Batman itself, because uh, a lot of the worst sort of actions of violence of things that are highly hinted at and then obviously the second half of the film is just this stereotypical group battle that usually happens in a lot of those sort of circumstances i also think it's interesting that this film because you guys talk about you know in your movie vault and like it being like a time capsule that this film is timeless but at the same time it's a very much a product of the 90s everything from you know um production design the look of the film and all that yeah that surface level stuff but I'm talking about the feel of our culture and society at the time, where in the 80s and 90s, we you can see in how we our films, they moved from a more happy, more cheerful, sort of ha- positive outlook on life to a much more cynical life is all about, you know, surviving and life's not full of rainbows. And then this film challenges that with the you know big theme of apathy. Uh, and what that does to people. And I, I think it tells a lot about the time and what we were going through as a society. It's almost a bit like a kind, like seems to me as well, like a kind of late 90s, early noughties movie. And I think that's where some of its influences lie as well, is you look at when it's like the 70s and everything was kind of like grey and kind of pale colours, etc. And it was all more serious. You know, you're looking at things like Taxi Driver and stuff like that. As you go into like the 80s and 90s, there's a lot more than the blockbusters and all stuff coming through thanks to films like Jaws, etc. So then as you're going into like the early 90s, you're getting a lot of these like big films like Spielberg, classics, uh, Close Encounters, that kind of stuff. These big, you know, swoop in sci-fi classics, you know, things like Armageddon and all these big, huge films. And I think that this was then one of the early films that kind of brought back those kind of like smaller, intimate, darker tales. The fact that this film is like, largely raining most of the time i think at the end of it when they're like chasing after um you know the killer and everything and i'm like oh it's sunlight there's daytime you know and it's not pissing down with rain i was like this is quite refreshing i think that does speak to the kind of aesthetic that in some ways david fincher did inspire because even when i think of something like like a random film like phone booth or something again even though that was more like early noughties it's again that similar vibe of like right, an isolated situation, a kind of like tense situation. We want to do like, you know, something like Seven in which is kind of taking this one concept and kind of running with it and sort of taking it seriously. They, they even had the screenwriter had rewritten the ending, but they'd accidentally sent him the original one. And then he and Brad Pitt just got together and said, well, we're off the project if, if we don't have Tracy's head in the box. Is that a spoiler? Should we even mention that yet? But yeah. Uh, I, I feel that, like that, society that, um, knows yeah. that's look, I'd yeah. never seen the film until last night. I knew whose head was in that box. 
It's ironic because the, the meme worthy line from the film is what's in the box, what's in the box. And it's like everyone, we all know what's in the box. To be fair, I was, and I was also watching it like, wait, is this the Brad film, Brad Pitt film with uh, David Fincher, Brad Pitt film with the head in the box? And then as soon as the parcel van arrives, I'm like, yep, yeah, it is. Okay. <laughs> I was like, wait, so. you didn't, you weren't even sure. <laughs> it was more like I got to the end of it. And I was like, wait, is it this one? I just I had to like second guess myself. I got to say, there's nothing that makes that, that the entire car ride over to the desert more tense than knowing his wife's head is about to appear in a box <laughs> yeah so uh let's dive into the film itself then so we'll go through like the storyline the themes of the films which we've been alluding to there um ed what what's some of your favorite aspects of of this story and, and what makes you kind of like enjoy re-watching it and revisiting it so much well i think in a way it's like a you know just just, just on a basic level it's you know sort of self-contained sort of gritty horror that you know d- it, it does exist by itself. It didn't bend to like Hollywood's desire for a sequel or for anything like that. Um, and and also just it sets itself up as, I mean, it's not really a buddy cop movie, but up until the last half hour, it sort of almost is just a, a just a horror, you know, buddy cop movie. Uh, and but then it you know it almost follows that formula. It seems like it's going down that route until John Doe hands himself in half an hour before the end. They, they, they weren't going to get him any other way. They've got no evidence or anything. There's two murders to go. They haven't finished off the seven. And what are they going to do? Oh, shit, that's what they're going to do. I see. And just watching it again, knowing how it's going to play out and knowing what sort of film it's going to be is just very enjoyable. Yeah, I definitely think as a duo, like Mil- Somerset and Mills, Mills and Somerset, however you want to say it, that, that, that does have a great ring to it. And I think that they, they do play you know the opposite so well, especially when you've got Morgan Freeman again, which at that time i guess was kind of going through this big sort of like slew of fantastic movies with uh yeah just so many famous roles um mike shawshank redemption here we go yeah we did say yeah uh, so i and the fact that then uh brad pitt is playing the kind of like younger character who has that kind of more rugged kind of look and you know just got out of bed and rushing into work whereas Somerset has that more traditional noir look like you were saying about Jake is that he has like the hat and he's very he's got the trench coat in the yeah exactly and like he's more like organized so everything he does he's kind of like you know make taking all the creases out of his coat and when you see his like office it's kind of like all planned and you know that guy is like chipping away at his name he's like can you get out here please you know that's kind of like a, a mild irritation and I don't want it and you know you see the differences between like you know when he's going home and when Brad Pitt's character is going home, I think that that duality and the, the contrast of those characters really builds up well to the end. Like you said, when you, you feel the urgency of Somerset running towards him, like, don't open the box, don't open the box. You know, you are like, it, it's all built to that moment about how, how they are as different as characters. Yeah, I think David Fincher really characterized these two amazingly well against each other because... They like from the first like opening seconds, like you know, there's you already get that conflict, and even Morgan Freeman at Somerset says, "You've literally just met me, and you're already like causing conflict." And from that, you instantly know who these two people are and what they're capable of and how they think and stuff like that. And I just think it's really powerful how you have Mills is so desperately trying to get into this world. And then you have Somerset so desperately trying to get out of it. You know, he's got six days to go before he's uh, retiring. And and he's fed up with sort of this job and this world that he lives in. And I also kind of find how it's really well done how the the character arc that Mel's goes on ends in tragedy. 
And I actually think Somerset picks up where Mills' arc should have left off and kind of finishes it for him. Or Somerset comes to the conclusion that Mills should have come to. But unfortunately, Mills is too much of a tragic character to get there. I just thought it was really, really well done and how Fincher constructed that between these two. And then how he also makes this film and these characters so realistic. Like, despite the environment they're in and the circumstances that are happening around them, everything is portrayed in a way that could happen in our, the world that we actually live in. Um, and I also, even to the fact of these elaborate killings by John Doe, and you, you would think, like, this type of monster, this type of person couldn't exist. But because of how Mills and Somerset react to this person and his crimes, we see similarities between them and John Doe, especially when we get to the end, that you think, yep, someone like John Doe could actually exist in our world too. And Fincher magically captures that just with these, the interplay between these three characters. Yeah, which sort of leads to like, you know, the fascinating scene when they're in the car, you know, and how Doe is kind of like, you know, toying with Mills there as well. And, you know, and how he's sort of like, you know, prodding him and trying to sort of like get a reaction out of him. And I think throughout, obviously, there's that idea of even when you don't know who it is doing all of this, there almost feels like he's there as that kind of like third character. Um, Because it's weird how the film doesn't set itself up about like, who is it? It's not like they're setting up these kind of like, wild card characters like is it him is it her you know it's, it's just the fact that like nope you don't know who this is it's so a man in the shadows and then they just come forth you know right at the end the thing is he is interwoven throughout the film quite nicely in ways you don't really anticipate obviously we know in the end that he's one of the people just sort of like taking pictures or having access to taking pictures uh the scene where they get the pic uh they get the picture from that um like the shop and he basically says that anything else about this guy's uh, he has a limp. Uh, you can actually see there's like a guy limping from the in the distance watching them as they leave that store. So he does have this presence. But for me, John Doe's evolution in the car, because obviously he tries to portray himself so much as the sort of detached, I'm doing God's purpose, I'm I'm killing for these reasons. But then becoming more emotive for reasons we don't understand because he's having to evolve into the envious character and he's having to de- demonstrate more of those traits in order to justify why he is an envious person has to die as well. Like specifically the, the rant where he tells the detectives not to call any of the people that he killed innocent. Mm. Um, I thought was like really, really powerful acting. And then obviously just sort of culminates in the what on earth is actually going on in any of this environment. And yeah, and just the fact that he kind of wants his fame, you know, from the situation, you know, it's like, what, what will happen here, you know, will be talked about and, you know, it, it's so amazing, like, I can't wait to show you, etc. Yeah. And you do think, yeah, you know, you have pulled that off in, you know, and that's why that box scene has become so famous. And I guess that's interesting from a visual point of view, again, is just what you guys were saying about before is that, you know, it's not grotesque in the ways that you're not seeing the murders played out, you're not kind of seeing every detail of things, you're just getting like subtle quick shots of it and it's the same with the box it's just you know what's in the box you see the box being opened but you don't literally like see the head in there and i think that possibly there's only one exception i think is actually quite good that a lot of the films there are lots of suggested grotesque elements to it however the one which is just naturally jesus christ what have you done is the sloth 
Oh, oh my the sloth, god. Yeah. Where he, where he the, wakes up as well. When he wakes up, oh. I was horrified. Mm. I literally was just like, how could he? And then just all the tidbits that they leak in about how he would have survived through that entire ordeal. The fact that his brain has gone to mush. The fact that his senses have basically just dissipated to the point he, he'll die if you flash a light in his eye. And also the fact that he was so mal... Like, he was so deprived of food when he needed to live that he chewed out his own tongue. Yeah, and just... And it, it, it speaks to the kind of, like, interest that people have, you know, now about, like, true crime, isn't it? Like, you know, true crime podcasts and all these films that do so, like, look at people like Ted Bundy, etc. You know, this, again, was kind of, like, triggering that kind of interest, I guess. And it's that idea of the fact that just the pure concept that he was getting away with this but it's believable like you said jake you know earlier about like there's a realism to all of this stuff because even with the slot scene when they come in and they've got like it's a fantastic visual and that's why it's hats off to the set team and the cinematographers but you know that the hanging pine trees just works so well because you're like yeah actually somebody might have actually done that just to sort of cover up the smell and the world they live in which i think I'd be interested in what you think, Jake, is it's similar in the sense of how Gotham is often portrayed is that idea of like, you don't get quite a pure impression of like, this is where we are. This is the city. It's just a vibe. It's just a constant feeling of like, this is raining and it's dark and the trains shake your apartment and you just feel like you're living in a crummy place, which makes you believe all of these crimes would go, you know, unseen because again, it's just the aspect of like, who's living opposite you, who never comes out of the door, you know, it's who's that horrible lawyer who, you know, probably deserved what he got, but just will have this like horrific death in this like, you know, posh place, etc. It's those kind of like unsolved mysteries and those kind of like dark, twisted crimes that, you know, do unfortunately happen to some degree. Yeah, obviously this is Hollywood, so it's on a much more exaggerated scale, but yeah, no, it's closely linked to how we see Gotham portrayed in the Batman, and in general, Gotham portrayed, I think, uh, might get some criticism here, but may, apart from Nolan, I think Gotham has been portrayed quite well throughout the films overall, but we're not talking about that. Um, I think what David Fincher did quite well here was that, you know, the old cliche, that but he made the city a character upon itself. You know, it's an oppressive feel, and everything about the production design the city itself um influences the characters and what they're going through you know and you know you mentioned at the top dave the amount of rain (laughs) in this film like it is constantly raining in this film like and i believe actually the scenes that it's not raining uh fincher said it was only not raining due to budget reasons or else he would have had had rain in those scenes as well maybe apart from the ending scenes i think that's um purposeful or where they are there that box might have not kept together if it was no it probably would have just a head just (laughs) already there but yeah i I just think and like thing is even when the characters are not outside in the rain um it's part of the soundscape when they're inside and they're not being enveloped by it you can still hear the sound of the rain coming from outside and it just creates this oppressive feel which i find really interesting how we associate rain most of the time with this oppressive gloomy tone um but yet we also associate rain and water with the bringing of life and yet that's in strict contrast with what this film is talking about the main subject being apathy and death and what people go i just think it's really fascinating 
how how they've done it there. It's just you know, even it everything is prayed, portrayed really realistically, even the loftier subjects like you can't objectively say a place is depraved, but what Fincher, Fincher does is that he shows you how depraved this place actually is and how this environment affects the characters that we're following. Masterfully done, I think. Yeah, I think even when you look at the sort of similar, you know, the the realistic situations, like even when like Mills comes home and he's like playing with his dogs, but you kind of see it through just like through a door or when you have the scene between Somerset and uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's character with talking about the pregnancy, I think there there's almost a kind of like um, Scorsese kind of Woody Allen kind of vibe to this kind of like realistic conversation, you know, just something, a scene happening over a cup of coffee. It's not like other directors would be almost tempted to do of being like, I'm doing this dark, gritty mystery horror. I need to carry on that theme throughout the entire film and just make every scene kind of like green and weird and creepy. It's like, no, the, you know, these are real characters and these sort of more realistic situations can like then reflect why they are acting the way they are in the more high tense situations but on the visuals like ed you mentioned earlier about like how it doesn't purposely go for the kind of like torture vibes that other films later went with and i guess even the start of the film to me i i think kind of goes with the more supernatural-esque death in a way you know the fact that you just see this person like bulging with all these veins etc you know, how how effective do you think that those visuals and those scenes are? Do you think that they are typical horror scenes or do you think that they're something altogether different? I think they've almost, it's almost maybe, if, if it is, it's it's become sort of typical horror scene. But uh, I, th- I think it's sort of something that right up until the end where, um, you know, Mills shoots John Doe, like possibly the, the closest we get to any sort of actual visceral violence is just in the opening credits where he's shaving his... Uh, fingernail, uh, his fingerprints off. Yeah, and uh, it, it's just uh, I, I, apart from that, it's just very, you know, you don't you don't see any sort of you know major visuals. You don't see much of anything really in the in the gluttony scene because it's all very dark as well. Uh, they haven't put many lights on for some reason, but uh, it it does just allow you to sort of you know live in that moment and sort of imagine what might have happened, and you know stuff that people imagine could, could have happened can often be much worse than what any filmmaker could ever put on screen ever, right? So it's all very effective in that sense. Yeah, especially like the the person who dies from the strap-on knife. Like oh, that's the one lust. that makes me just... Yeah, that makes me cringe yeah. at just the thought. And especially because it's the guy who's like, get this thing off me. And you're like, oh, you know, it's just... And all you ever really see of what might have happened is that one Polaroid yeah, of exactly. like what the, what, what the guy in the store made. And it's like... You, you can just imagine, you don't need to know anything else. You don't even really see, don't even see the uh, victim that much, do you? Just see her legs behind mm. um, Brad Pitt a little bit. But the guy who, who did the deed, when they're interrogating him, he sells it, doesn't he? He sells how mm. horrific that act was, that you don't need to see it. Like, it's, it's brilliant. Uh, apparently, apparently the actor, I think, I can't remember his name right now, but didn't he stay up for like two or three days sort of not getting any sleep? And sort of practiced hyperventilating so that on on you know on on screen for that minute or two he can be gaunt he can be horrified he can be whatever pretty much realistically because that's what I've been going through. Yeah, specifically, uh, he would always ensure that his body was over overly saturated with oxygen um, to ensure that he had the ability to hyperventilate on command. That yeah, that is uh, that, that's a good point actually. When you think about again the actual the performances of those sequences as well, apart from just the visuals, which 
you know, it's interesting as well because you have so many times in which they're like going in with police, etc., and like these like SWAT kind of guys, which gives you the vibe of like, I don't know, like a Michael Bay film kind of almost, but you know, it's with the aesthetic of this like horror film. So it's, it's very contrasting in that way. And I think the tension that's built through like scenes when Somerset goes back to the house from for the gluttony death, you know, and he's like moving, I think is it like the fridge or something? There's just so much tension and the way that the music is used to like build this like, oh my God, something's about to happen. And there's so many fake out kind of scary moments in this film, which again, I think makes him more scary than just, ooh, jump cut. But yeah, so and... To be fair, it does also mean that the first time actual sort of gunshots are fired in the film you somewhat don't expect it, but then it happens and it just does catch you off guard. It makes it almost, uh, I'm, I'm almost, almost disappointed that David Fincher's original plan for the ending didn't pan out. In, in the, uh, apparently his original plan was that the gunshot that, that Mills does right at the end would then cut to black, like in a Soprano style. And, uh. then, and so, so you'd have a gunshot cut to black for about 10 seconds and then the credits. And, and having the first real act of violence in the film just be the end of the film with no... Um, you know, epilogue at the end, which the studio made Morgan Freeman say. See, I, I, I've heard that story before, and I like that ending. But I also like the ending that we did get. I think yeah, I'm it with provides that. a I... bit of it. Yeah, it provides a bit of like closure to the, you know, to more to Morgan Freeman's sort of character yeah. development over the film. Yeah, so it is. It's better you have something, I guess. But I don't know. It's it's good to have both in a way, I guess. So you can sort of just you, you, sometimes you know the last few weeks, few days when I've been watching it. Sometimes I have just paused the film at the end where he's just shot him they and he's on do, the floor. And that's they it. should do the Fincher okay, cut. They gives you the option on the Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah, because I think as this Somerset says, Ernest Ernest Hemingway once wrote, "The world is a fine place and worth fighting for." I agree with the second part. So, and I I did kind of feel that was a bit random to to an extent. I was a bit like, I oh. know I like that line. I think no, it I was like more... that line. Yeah. Yeah, I like the line. I yeah. think it's just inclusion. Yeah, yeah, just... Yeah. I think for me, the area of the epi- sort of epilogue that I'm not too fond of, and I think while I do admit, I think this this film has a lot of great things in it. I think there are things which are sort of slightly out of it, and I probably wouldn't have made certain choices. I'm not sure how much I personally feel that the "you'll see me around" sort of line gives as much sort of closure and sort of wrapping up uh, for uh, Somerset's story, where just where I think we have a lot of like sort of implied sort of uh, wrapping up, which is that this is a very uh, like uh, apathetic man who just does, who tries to like devoid himself of emotion for everything. And just watching the degree to which he is just, just emotionally invested at the end to ensure that a certain decision doesn't happen. Also just seeing him horrified at certain actions. I felt that was sort of enough to sort of bring him back in. I didn't need the entire, yeah, I'm probably not quitting sort of now. Mm. Um, so like I said, I think it gives some value. I don't think it gives as much value. Whereas I think that immediate shock at the end, because also just there's that lull after the, the murder actually happens. And then he just sort of walks off and just Somerset is like, that, that's not doing anything either. Something more needed to happen right after that visceral reaction. If you're going to carry on, otherwise I think doing what Fincher and me immediately suggested probably works better. Yeah. Cause it's almost like just seeing Brad Pitt sat in that car. It almost feels like deleted scene esque in the sense yeah. of like, Oh yeah. Okay. We're just seeing him sat there. You know, it's, 
Especially considering it's such a short scene as well. It's like, that is your big crescendo, isn't it? That big kill. And yeah, I think that would have left on a bit of a more of a mystery. Like, oh, you know, like you can make up your own ending in your head. And maybe they could have included that line in another way. Just had it like Ernest Hemingway quote come up on screen or something. But I don't know. I was I was surprised that obviously we didn't then see some ramifications. So I was like, oh, okay, I would have. But again, I suppose that's just the way the films generally go. That, that That's just what I anticipated. I'm not necessarily saying, oh, I wish it did do that because it probably would just be I think I'd agree with you if we don't see him in the police car. I think at the point we see him in the police car, I was like, yeah, that's that's basically what I'd expect. Yeah. No, I was thinking like whether they were going to go to a hall, like you see him in prison or like, you know, you see oh, how Mills be, is... That would be yeah. harsh. That would be really harsh. To seeing how Mills has been affected by it. I didn't know if they were going to go for a like, oh, and now he's the criminal kind of, you know, like message or something like that. Yeah, David, David Fincher is not that much of a wanker. Sorry, David. <laughs> I think one of my favorite things prior to that ending is uh, when Somerset is talking to Mills in the bar and he talks about, you know, um, the problem with this world is that people are just so, I'm paraphrasing, but just so inclined to let apathy happen. You know, it's easier to do drugs than sort out your life. It's easier to steal than work work for your stuff and that. And I think, I kind of think that what's, what he's saying about people's apathetic nature, like it can almost be viewed as like, he's condoning uh, John Doe's mission in a way like you you can kind of look at it from that end like like John Doe he viewed the world as like depraved and decided that attrition is the only answer and you know eventually self-punishment and all this sort of stuff like he did his set out his plan and all that and they're both meticulous people they're both well organized they're both very intelligent um, and I and, you know, his plan eventually succeeds in the end, you know, the, the quote unquote villain uh, won. But what I also think is so good about the ending of this, like when you look at um, the character Mills, is that, you know, most similar stories to this, especially if we're going back a bit further back to like the cl- more classic noirs, like uh, the evil at the end of it is always like expunged or caught or, you know, a- and... You know, Tracy wouldn't would have survived. You know, uh, John Doe John Doe would have still died, but he would have died in a in a heroic fight from Mills, and he would have tried to reform him in some way. But what I love is that it's this is not that movie. Like our hero is more likely to like falsify evidence and all that than make a stirring speech at the end of the film. And I just like how David Fincher just hits you with this of like this apathetic people. Uh, and I also, one last thing on John Doe, you know, when he changes his plan at the end, you know, so I don't think he's doing it just to shock the people he's encountering because it was envy. His envy was that the one he had, that he had to kill himself. And this is where I think he was wrong because he states that his final sin was envy, but I believe that he was actually envying the sin itself rather, rather than him being envious. If, if you, if you know what I mean. Like it was actually because he was envying Mills when he actually should have been envying Somerset. And I believe somewhere along the story, Somerset changed his mind about his worth to society. You know, no, no longer believing himself to be apathetic. That's why he agrees with that second, la- second half of, the fil- of that quote that he says. So I, I totally see both ways of how the film ended. Um, yeah, I do kind of prefer the sort of mystery of that, just the bang. Uh, but I also do like this sort of epilogue of 
seeing Somerset's journey and sort of closing out what Fincher was trying to say about apathy. Mm, I think it, it speaks to the strengths and how you kind of like relate or kind of analyze the characters. So I think the Somerset for me is a more fascinating character. And I think by the time you get to the end, you understand why, because Mills is obviously played as more the chess piece in the sense of like, he's just part of this bigger plan. Whereas I think, like you said, Jake, that that scene between Somerset and Mills, that's one of my favorites from it is that conversation. Because I think that they, again, there's almost the, that admittance from Somerset that he almost believes that you know, th- there's no hope for humanity in some ways or that he has, he can't sympathize with the people who are doing these things because to him again, where you see the way that he lives his life, he's so like, you know, proper and the way that he utilizes his contacts in like the FBI or like the people at the library, he kind of uses them, but he doesn't sort of engage with them. I think is quite interesting that he's not one of the guys there like gambling, etc. He's kind of just utilizing that tool where he needs to, you hear the fact that, you know, he, he was involved in a relationship and like it didn't work out and then the fact that like he's more like on his own you know where he lives compared to mills i think there's you know an element there of judgment of like you know these criminals and the way that people like live their lives and that comes into the decision of like do i want to help fight the corruption of this world and that's what makes the end in that quote more interesting i guess is that idea of like he's come to peace with the fact that that is the way things are but it doesn't mean that he shouldn't continue to to carry on what he thinks is just a losing battle but that's just who he is and what he has to do his approach in that kind of like research and that theoretical side i think really works for the film because he's kind of like the noir character the most whereas like brad pitt for me like when they have that scene and i think the way that the the sins like unravel throughout the film is quite effective it doesn't just go like oh now here's this now there's this you know they use gluttony right from the beginning i think it's quite effective but also then the fact that they kind of like sync up other sins when they think like oh we've got him and you know this is, is this guy like we found him and it's like oh no it's actually one of the other sins crap you know so it's constantly like throwing you curveballs in where it's happening how it's happening and especially then the last two that it's like oh it's actually two of the characters that you've been following are now the sins but i think that yeah the way the morgan freeman's character somerset works within that is the most interesting because he's the one who is the most academic and the most researched he's there going to the library i'm sure you were loving that jake in terms of him like picking out all those books you know the canterbury tales and all of that kind of stuff um, but it gives you the vibes and the aesthetic of what this film is going for in that classic detective, you know, story in some ways. He would have made a great Jim Gordon. I can say that. Yeah, I guess they kind of were going for that with, again, the Batman and just like the aesthetics of the inspiration of the character. I mean, he made a good Lawrence Fox. So. Oh, yeah, he was in the Batman films. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, take your cassettes, rewind them, and play them again, because it's VHS Corner. So, I'd like to say a couple of things I found about this film. Uh, That would be disingenuous. I found a lot of interesting things about this film, and I think a lot of things we've already even covered in the discussion already. So, usually I would be like, "Uh, stay away from my section. No, I'm just like, please take away my workload, because this is a fascinating film, both in its actual storyline, in its telling, but also just looking deep uh, behind the scenes. So here's a couple of things uh, to look at. So first of all, let's look at Brad Pitt, because obviously this is very much a one of his like more starting out sort of roles, and he's very much a youngster, and he's not to the same extent of like megastar, uh, 
megastar that he currently is now. Uh, a couple of ways in which he interacts with the film. So the first one is uh, very, uh, very fun, is that um, all the ties that he wears in the film are ones that he bought himself because purely because he wanted uh, Mills to have what he described as a poor fashion sense. So that's an incredible self-burn there. The other thing to say, uh, the other thing to say uh, about Brad Pitt is obviously we have to talk about his injury during the film. So when you see him at the end with like a bandaged arm and all cut up, that's that's not fake. He actually did massively injure himself during the scene. He was massively meant to injure himself. Uh, specifically, what happened was uh, he fell in the scene when they were chasing John Doe in the rain. Uh, Pitt's arm went through a car windshield requiring surgery uh thankfully because it was already in the script they were able to carry on once he once he recovered the other thing to say about brad pitt specifically um twofold one david fincher told him and john doe that this is not going to be the movie that you're remembered for but it may be a movie you're incredibly proud of which is ironic considering that we may say that it's something that should be remembered for but also brad pitt himself considers this to be one of the most perfect films he's ever made the other thing is that with Brad Pitt is they obviously used his relationship in order to make some get some of the film physically made in the first place. Uh, because Fincher specifically wanted Gwyneth Paltrow because he enjoyed her work in Flesh and Bone. Um, and she was always going to be the first choice for uh, the wife. Uh, she was initially not interested. So Fincher asked her then boyfriend Brad Pitt to convince her to meet with him. Um, which is quite good considering that Brad Pitt considered Gwyneth Paltrow's character to be the only sunshine that we have in the film. Now is probably a good time to actually address why there was so much rain. Uh, specifically two reasons. One, because he, want, uh, he wanted to add a sense of dread. But two, it meant they never had to worry about bad weather stopping a day from being shot in the first place. So that's why even if there are budget constraints, it's just like, it's fine, just carry on going with it. Now for a little bit of like additional casting outside of it. So... Um, one of the original picks for Brad Pitt's character of uh, Mills was originally going to be Denzel Washington, but he turned down the part after feeling that the film was too dark and evil. He has now later come to regret that decision after he saw a screening of the film itself. Ironically, Fincher thought that um, the first person who would reject the film outright would be Morgan Freeman. Apparently, he was the first one to eagerly join the cast in the first place. Which has got to be a nice feeling for Fincher. It's just like, oh, this is like a dream cast. He's never going to do it. I'll do it, please. Mm -hmm. The other thing to add then on, on casting, and this is probably where I think we get into more of the attention to detail this film necessarily has, because I think there are some impressive things, but not just the high, the high list characters we necessarily have, but also some of the more minor roles. Fincher wanted somebody to play the incredibly skinny, around 90 pound character, Victor. So he's the one who is literally sloth. Um, Michael Reed McKay auditioned, and when he auditioned, he weighed 96 pounds. Fincher gave him the part and jokingly told him to lose more weight, which he then went and did. So if you already thought he was grotesquely skinny then, yeah, Fincher accidentally made that happen. So the other thing um, to note about that is that makeup for the sloth victim, because he obviously had to have a lot of uh, prosthetics, as m many of the victims did, uh, took over 14 hours in order to put on. Yeah, the last couple of things then. Uh, so one is talking about like the actual books. So the uh, all of the books that they had to read for uh, through uh, from John Doe's sort of room 
they were all real books that had things written in them. Uh, it took two months to physically complete and cost $15,000. According to Morgan Freeman, two months is about the time it would take the police to read all the books. And also in the theme of writing, the credits, which I think we've op- we've mentioned the opening, which is stellar, but also the credits is something completely unique because it's obviously the reverse scroll. Uh, the reason that happened is David Fincher wanted the credits to look like something that a killer had written themselves, adding very much to that atmosphere, especially considering everything we've gone on. And finally, I feel we need to talk about gluttony because ironically, we're going to end this on a lighter note. So for the gluttony scene, several crates of cockroaches were released on set and poured on Bob Mack. So he was the gluttony victim. Uh, Something had to be put in his ears and nose to stop the cockroaches from crawling in. It didn't stop them from crawling into his underwear. I promise you levity. Here it is. Fincher felt incredibly bad for whoever had to wear all of, uh, had to go through that and wear all of the uh, hot gluttony prosthetics. So to compensate, he made him well endowed. That's right, he made up for the torture a character had to endure by giving them a bigger dick. (laughs) And what better note to end VHS Corner on than that? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So that is a lot, I admit. When you you end on something like that, it's hard to think of anything else, really. It kind of does add to what I was going to say about the the sets, though, is that it's that attention to detail and the fact that that's the opening scene and you are like, oh, you know, what's going on here? And that idea that you are in somewhere that would be cockroach infested. So and that goes to what I was saying about the books and stuff. That's really fascinating that because when they're flicking through it again, that's what gives you such the vibes of detail and murders and, you know, that kind of Charlie Day, you know, like web of craziness you know it's that idea of the fact that somebody has like written all of that and then the fact he's going through all those books and i love when morgan freeman is saying like you know we need more guys to like go through these you know we could like spend days going through all of this kind of stuff and it just gives you that insight to the killer and just again goes to show like if this was made now not so much not so much that you'd make like a cg apartment or book or anything like that but i'm just not sure if they would like they would definitely detail they would definitely use a lot of shortcuts in places yeah i would like to say the batman did that exactly remember the riddler's notebooks all all the ones that uh batman founded his apartment i wouldn't be surprised if matt reeves was like yeah you you get some people to write those oh yeah yeah (laughs) no but that's what i'm saying yeah i don't know if people would then like cut corners in some ways in terms of like adding that detail for other types of like wannabe films they certainly wouldn't they certainly wouldn't go for the expense of having every single book Mm. written out for example yeah yeah probably not it's just it's just somewhere that yeah you can imagine going into and you can imagine exploring it's not the idea of like oh well there's nothing behind that or like if you open that it'd just be blank that you can tell the detail that's there yeah ed is there any other sort of facts that stood out to yourself the, the, the fiberglass dick in the autopsy room has is, is just uh, overshadowed everything in my mind. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have nothing more to give right now. I will say it is impressive the more you read about the back, the behind the scenes on this film, just how, just how utterly dedicated everyone was to this project. It was never, it was not a project which was backed by the sort of like the biggest sort of uh, studios and circumstance at the time. Um, but it was one that everyone was very much, they were willing to sacrifice whatever they needed to in order to make it work. Um, and I think that is why it does massively work. That's why you get some of the most invested performances. And the fact that you have everyone sort of bringing in their own little details, the fact that you have Brad Pitt also wanting to 
sort of mold the character very much into uh into an image that he finds like more compelling and just like the tie detail is such a small thing but i did also think during the film there was like a weird emphasis on the ties so i'm glad that that's why that happened yeah that is true i think that's a testament to david fincher as a filmmaker like yeah absolutely when you hear from other actors that he's worked with and in other projects like he's a very you know particular detailed director and he gets the best he can from his actors so i can imagine him like really selling this vision of his and you know i think with actors it's not so much well it's it's the project itself but it's also who they're going to be working with and david fincher seems like the type of filmmaker that would really sell you on this idea and you'd want to work with him yeah and i think you've seen that a lot like in recent years haven't you like with like Dave Bautista, like really will stand by like James Gunn, for example. And you've had like Denis Villeneuve, you know, it has the same effect of like having this big influence on everyone who's working on it. And you see with something like Mad Max, et cetera, people are like, I'm willing to like toil in the blistering heat for the vision of this film. So it seems like similar vibes. And even on projects which weren't as successful, you see a lot of, uh, a lot of stars from before, such as like, uh, Alec Baldwin, Peter Fonda, and Mara Wilson really, really defending Britt Olcroft, aka the creator of Thomas the Tank Engine, saying that she was a fantastic director to work for when they did The Magic Railroad. What a random connection that is there. But like, I'm sorry, I've been watching a lot of Thomas the Tank Engine retrospectives recently, and that just came up, and I thought, that's a natural segue, I can bring that info in. That Because I think it demonstrates the point, right? Even if it's something which is just crap, it is something that if you enjoy the process of who you're working with, you will defend the making of that process yeah. as much as possible. And sometimes when it's, like you said, good quality, it, it sifts out into like what their output yeah. is, that the, you know, the score becomes better, the visuals become better, etc. But yeah, good point there to uh, join on to the movie vault. As we said earlier, we have our usual task of deciding whether today's film deserves a place in our vault of movies that encapsulates good, bad, and mediocre films for all time. So for new listeners or guests, we like to think of this as a time capsule of memorable movies for someone to dig up in the future. So should Seven gain the honour of a place in our movie vault and be remembered for all time? Craig, I'll go to you first after you were discussing the facts there. Has that made an impression on you or just the film in itself? I mean, like I said, I already, I always already think that... I think the last sort of hour to a 40, 45 minutes of the film alone... I think are movie vault worthy, but it's one of those films which literally does in, does encourage repeat watching and sort of repeat analysis, both insofar as how how are these themes explored, how do the characters sort of develop in this way, but also just it's such a great feeling. No, of just it's that sort of Alfred Hitchcock sort of theory of you watch five people at a table having a conversation and then a bomb blows up and nothing happens, versus you watch five people on the table. Uh, talking for five minutes but the audience know there's a bomb under the table and just seeing the ways in which those interactions and the way in which that sort of tension builds up significantly different so that's why i feel that it's a film it's a film which probably isn't the first to try that sort of technique i mean um but i think it just does massively do it and it's just when you then actually look at the attention to detail on everything else and sort of look over the film and sort of appreciate that i think there's so much that needs to be recognized from this film that i would put it in yeah i think um for me like i said it comes a lot of you know that respect and for the performances the music the way that it sort of builds tension the way the story plays out obviously it's harder in the sense that it's not like 
a go-to for me. It's not like my vibe of film. I'm not like a big horror guy. Not even you like keep a big calling it horror. I think it's gore. I think it's a. Di- I think there's a difference. Yeah, but I think again that when you look at it, like the way that it's referenced or discussed or talked about, a lot of people say about like how it changed horror or how it changed. Yeah, know, because because like, of gore. I, yeah. I felt but like you said that you know like where ed's mentioning like saw and stuff like that that did change the landscape of a lot of like yeah, but that doesn't movies. mean that the film itself is horror no but it has horror elements definitely yeah stop calling it pure horror then <laughs> well, i'm not saying it's pure horror but i'm saying you that... are you you preface <laughs> it all the time with horror something i said and crime movies mystery films that is not usually my bag Fine. And i think that sometimes i can be won over if it's something like get out or something in which there's like a bigger story or something kind of like intriguing about it i think here it is more just the kind of true crime vibes of like oh isn't this fascinating isn't this dark and i'm like it is but you know it's just something i don't gravitate towards so i can respect the hell out of it but to me it's again is it one that i would potentially rewatch? possibly not but i'm sure uh, our guests will disagree so uh Ed, what, what's what your is your thoughts? actual answer though that, that isn't an answer uh, well, that's why i'm like willing to leave it up to you guys but i'm sure <laughs> ed what, what what do you think i i have nothing more really to add to what craig said so i'm just going to say yes <laughs> i thought you were going to say more than craig had it's not pure horror <laughs> jake what do you think uh i'm going to use your own logic against you and be like well even if you like it or not is it worth watching in its genre as itself uh, and I would say absolutely it is. It's one of the finest of its particular genre, which I would say is a th- more thriller than horror, Dave. Okay, well, bring this up with all the video essay, essay people that oh, I Oh, we will. Watching. I will go in the comment section of every single one and just be like, this is not horror. <laughs> I will agree in the sense I think that this has such detail to it, such a fascinating sort of like production history, so many details, so many great performances and such a legacy, even in just the box element that, uh, yeah, Into the Movie Vault, I think, goes seven. We're in the endgame now. Okay, endgame time. And as you've probably guessed now, the the endgame name this time is just very simple. Today, we're going to be playing What's in the Box? What's in the Box? What's in the Box? Don't worry, it's nothing horrific. You know, when, uh, horrific when we in- uh, first started this Zoom call, I thought that was a box of KFC. <laughs> <laughs> KFC? <laughs> I don't. And then I realized, oh no, it's a Vans box instead. Yeah, it is very. Yeah, so for those who obviously can't see, uh, throughout this entire time, there has been a, a, a Vans box uh, with a question mark on it. Uh, David, being frustrated at the fact that Zoom flips the camera, did painstakingly make sure that the question mark was done so that our guests would see the question mark the right way round. I see it the wrong way round. I see it the wrong way round. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is oh, the yeah, no, oh because <laughs> I think it flips it for us, but not for them. Oh, for God's sake! <laughs> like, let's just vibe check it. So, from your guys' perspective, what side of the room am I on? You're on the right. The right. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> you trolled me, Zoom. You trolled me. <laughs> it's fine. We've got this covered. Yeah, there is the original sort of post-it note. So for for me and David, it's the wrong way around. But for you guys, it's now corrected. But basically, so what's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? So don't worry. There's nothing like Gwyneth Paltrow's head in this. Is it her cream? God no. <laughs> What I've done is I've taken various merchandise, so whether that just be sort of figurines, 
uh, plushies or in some cases like masks of different characters who have appeared in films. So this might be film characters per se. These might be characters that have been adapted into films, uh, but they have been in a film whatsoever. So what's going to happen is David is going to... Yeah, this is the part where you should worry. Uh, David is going to, in a five-round system, uh, start feeling one of the uh, one of the pieces of merchandise and is going to describe what it feels like so that you can guess which character it is. So what will happen is, per round, you will have one guess. So you don't have to answer immediately. You just need... When you feel comfortable with the character based on like featurettes that have been described, it might be something that they're holding. It might be the way in which their head is shaped. It could be any of these things that David will describe to you. I'm going to emphasize this heavily, mainly so that David knows what he's looking out for. And then once you feel comfortable that you have a guess, uh, it's basically fastest first. If the person gets it wrong, it moves over to the next person. If you get it wrong, then there's no point for that round. Sound good? Do we need to buzz in somehow, or what are we doing for that? Uh, I just, like, just shout out, basically. Okay, yeah, cool. So before that, we should probably have an idea of what it is we'll be playing for. So obviously, this is the beginning of the year. This is the chance where we have uh, the ability to set the tone for the rest of the year going forward in the pathway uh, for the suggested film. So we'll start with David. Tell us a little bit about your film. So my film is from 19... 60 and the main connection to the film that we've discussed today is purely in its name so the film just borrows an element of the name which is used in this uh, it is a genre that we have never ever done before i can say that for a fact and uh, it has a very very famous piece of music slash soundtrack so that's my choice Interesting. So the genre we've never taken before, taking us down an interesting path. Horror. <laughs> Jake, tell us a little bit about your film. My film came out in 1991. The lead character is portrayed by a Welshman. And the connection to Seven is it tackles similar themes. Interesting. That's, that's all I can really say without giving... It's, it's pretty obvious once I give away more clues what it is. Okay, excellent. I think the air of mystery continues. Um, so that is Jake's suggestion. Ed, tell us a little bit about yours. So this is a film 1998. Don't think it's... A, no, it's definitely not Welsh. There's an American and uh, an Asian uh, main characters. And it also, in a roundabout way tackle similar themes very roundabout but you know i mentioned it earlier okay excellent and finally then for my film that can be chosen is a film from 2014 so i feel that this in look is has a very sort of dark tone um probably not as dark as this film but i think sort of the ways in which the production design of this film uh to make things look incredibly bleak also sort of uh filters into the characters but the main sort of link that my film has to uh, Seven, I think is asking a slightly different question. Instead of what's in the box, it's asking who's in the box. So those are the four films. So reminder, if you are the winner of the endgame, you get to choose any one of those four films. So you don't have to necessarily choose your own film, but you can. Um, 
any films that aren't dis- uh, aren't chosen go into the roulette wheel, whatever the thing we've called it at the time. So, are we ready to play? Okay, are we ready? Let's yep. go. David, lean into the box. Have you got one that you're comfortable to sort of feel around on? Describe what you feel. It seems wrinkly. It seems like there's... Yeah, it, it feels rubbery and like a halloween kind of mask and like yeah wrinkled old like an old person or feel something. around the mouth bulbous maybe um i don't know yeah there's like a few holes i don't know if this is a mouth uh this is gonna sound so strange um oh there's like some form of tassel thing yeah, that, that's called putting on the mask, David. There's <laughs> <laughs> this thing called a strap, I think. Um, can, can we get a bit yeah, more description I... on the actual face? <laughs> this is giving me nothing else. I don't know. Yeah, this is rubber. It's wrinkly. It feels crinkled and, yeah, bulbous. Oh, wait. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a stab in the dark. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Is it a Freddy Krueger mask? Is it a Freddy Krueger mask? So, Ed, if you have any idea of which character this might be, uh, the audio of this is great, by the way. <laughs> um, just say Michael Myers. Michael Myers. Is it Michael Myers? It is a mask of the Joker. Oh, God. Right. Uh, so what I was trying to allude to was the scar marks. Right. Okay. Right. Okay, so that's round one. That's the only mask. Okay, good. Oh, thank goodness for that. So, David? Right. Instant. Wish me luck. It's got, like, a tag on it. Um, this kind of, like, feels like an animal or something. There's... You're, you're almost pulling it out of the box, David. <laughs> there's, a, there's a kind of, like, bulbous foot. They've got... I don't know, it feels like they're giving, like, a thumbs up or something. Like, a hand. It feels like there's, like, a little, like, sort of claw or paw or something like that. It's very soft. Uh, the one end... Oh, what's this? Okay, there's something like either hair or like a cape, but it's not furry. It's not like fine hairs. It's just one like piece of fabric. So it's either like a cape or hair or something. And then it's got like, I think some form of ears. Oh, hang on, what's this? Uh, can I have some a Some other form of fabric. Yep, Jake. Is it like some form of plushie of Grogu, Baby Yoda? It is sadly not Baby Yoda. Yeah, it feels like a kind of, it's like Rosie and Jim kind of vibes. It's like, it feels like a sort of like plushie with like kind of like a mitten kind of hand. But then the top, there's like some form of like attached fabric, which feels like like a triangle on top. But I don't know if that's like an ear or something. And then there's like another what's little this, spike. This, is, that, is that more like a hat oh. or more like a cape? Okay, no, there's more. like, so there's two, there's two like sort of triangular bits on either side. And then like a, tr- a little mini triangle in the middle. And then it's like, yeah, there's some form of like cape on the back. It feels like hair and a cape actually. It feels like it's some form of like long hair draped down. But it's just one piece of material, and then there's like another piece of like draped down material. I, I I just keep thinking the Incredibles. So I'll just say that syndrome from the Incredibles with his cape. Unfortunately, the moment that David started saying about animals, I was like, he's leading you down the wrong path because oh. it's actually four. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the fum oh. the thumbs up he could feel was the hammer. <laughs> oh okay. <Jeez. laughs> 
That makes sense why it's like the little spike in the triangle. David, do you need to see a doctor? You think that's a hand, do you? Okay. Okay. So far, we're uh, nil for nil. I've done such a good job. Right. Right. Okay. So this has got a clip on it. So it's like a kind of like thing you put the on. The clip like... is irrelevant to what the... <laughs> I tell you what kind of product is likely to be made into like a clip type plushie. Okay. So like... for I will say what David is currently ho- holding is a coin purse. Right. Okay. It's got very long, um, what feel like ears or something like that. Um, they're like sort of triangular spiky ears on either side. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is it... Is it uh, again my previous answer? Just, is just it... wait. Just uh, Ed, were you like wanting no, no, to no, get? I'm thinking. Okay, Jake, go for it. Can I give? A, can I kind of cheat and say one of two answers? I'm happy. I'm happy for you to give me two answers. So uh, like, to to make it fair, everyone can give me two answers. I'll from tell now you on. that I can also like with my finger. I can feel like a face, and it feels like there's like a circle. And then I can feel like a kind of like a ripple, like a mouth. Yeah, and, like so. A, for me, I, th- I think it's the ears that gave it away. My previous answer is it either Grogu or Yoda? Is it Grogu or Yoda? No, it is not. I mean, I was thinking, I've been kept for the last minute or so on like the Simpsons with their weird head, head things, so I'll just say like Lisa. Is it Lisa Simpson? It is a Pikachu, Pikachu. Uh, coin purse. <laughs> So oh, that, the ears, fair. obviously, uh, what I was hoping David would get to is that the mouth is sort of the right, but also just the sort of very large sort of cheeks, if you notice that there are eyes above it. Mm. So we're down to two rounds. I will say I do have a tiebreaker. <laughs> Which we will also not get. Well, you <laughs> will eventually, given this infinite guesses. I will, I will be nice and explain that oh. this is an alien character. Wait, if it's the one I think it is. Yeah, this is an alien character. So, again, uh, this is just, like, to what it is, but if it gives an indication, there's, like, a little drawstring kind of thing. So it's, like, something like a key, like, something you put on a keychain or something. It's, like, a tiny loop string. Um, yeah, it's got, like, pointy horns or ears. Um, and then it's, like, the head or something is, like, quite, sli- sli- uh, like, cylinder-like. And then it's got, like, a tiny circular body it feels like it's kind of got some kind of jacket or like sleeve on or something on it it's got can like you a... can you pull the the jacket off um it kind of like pulls away from it i can't pull it fully off but okay. it feels like you can pull it away so it feels like it's separate so what you're saying is that it could it could potentially transform right so yeah i've got i think i've got an obvious answer but i don't know if it is. <laughs> you're gonna shoot Grogu again? No, no, not. Got, not. There is like a kind of like on. So where there's like these horn, like ear things, there's kind of like a lip thing, like some form of like like hook on their face or something. There's like a little like. Look, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Just say something, please. Put me out of this agony. Not... Get it off me. Get it off me. I... I'm, I'm struggling. <laughs> I'm struggling with this one. Jesus, I wish I put Gwyneth Paltrow's head in this now. <laughs> I don't know. I'll just say Loki and, and, and be done with my guess. Is it Loki? A good guess, I think. Uh, I'm just going to get it, get my guess out of the way. Is it the Xenomorph from Alien? It's infuriating because it's a character. Part of its design actually gets inspired by the Xenomorph. It is 
It's Frieza from Dragon Ball Z. Oh, God. Oh. How were you supposed to get that? <laughs> I never would have got that. Right, so there's one round left. And I will say, for dramatic purposes, both of these have come up as answers. Okay, so one of them I could feel like it's like plush. It's soft. It's got like a fuzzy like back to like its head. It's like feels like hair. Like everything else I've described has just been pieces of fabric. But this is actually like fluffy. So it's actually like fluffy hair on the back of something um but it feels like the back of the head so the top of it feels like very rippled and then it kind of goes down to like a kind of like bulbousy like nose yeah like very long ears either side it's got kind of like a robe jake just to say it is it grogu or yoda <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna actually make you choose which one is it is it grogu or yoda i'm gonna say yoda yep just because the has got a library card doesn't make him Yoda. Oh, oh, and there was the other one was said as well. Yeah, I said. Oh, both right, of them wow. said. Oh so my god! Right. If you want to go for the bonus round, wow. Well, let's go. We might as well go for the bonus round. Yeah. This one, so this yeah. is like something very small um, and like movable plastic. It's got like spiky. It's very spiky. It's got like a fabric kind of element to it, but it's like movable arms. Yeah, spiky head to it, like really like popping out kind of spiky and not up spiky is kind of like a all round think back to the answers is that lisa yeah it's lisa simpson lisa simpson in lego form i think for the sake of the difficulty of that game uh we're going to call that version of the game a draw and then we're going to go for a different tiebreaker i think this is going to be like a closest to i think it's probably going to be the the fairest thing so Given that, obviously, we've been discussing Seven. Uh, Seven was the uh, the fifth highest grossing movie of uh, 1995, 95? Mm-hmm. So basically closest to how much has it grossed? Yeah, so worldwide, in, in US dollars, how much has it grossed? Do you want the fun little trivia about where this ranks in the top grossing of 1995? While we're waiting for these answers, yeah, sure, go for it. It's the seventh highest grossing film of that year. Oh, it's seventh? Yeah. What told me it was fifth? Oh, I don't know. Okay, I just read the thing wrong. So, Jake has given us 85 million, and Ed has given us 501 million. The correct answer is 327.3 million, which means the closest is 501 so ed hey that's mental congratulations i mean i thought you were way off seven was the seventh highest grossing of that year above casper with 287 waterworld with 264 and jumanji with 262 but above it was batman forever pocahontas goldeneye apollo 13 toy story and die hard with vengeance yeah so the rough approximation was that uh Jake was 242 million out. Ed was 174 million out. So Ed was closer. So congratulations, Ed. How do you feel? Yay, I won a thing. (laughs) So the question is now, you have four films in front of you. Uh, Which would you like us to discuss in the next episode? Would you like it to be your film or one of ours? You want it to be yours. Ed, go ahead. The the, uh, Buddy Cop movie. The Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker. I knew it. Rush Hour. I knew it was Rush Hour. If you want the girl back alive, listen and do not talk. The drop will be made tonight, 11 p.m. 
the amount will be $50 million. $50 million? And who do you think you kidnapped, Chelsea Clinton? Detective James Carter loved his job just a little too much. You destroyed half a city block. That block was already messed up. And you lost a lot of evidence. Still got a little bit left. But the job got a little too dangerous. You have 29 minutes left. I got everything under control. Papa. I want to speak with my daughter. Time was about to get his daughter back and you screwed it up. I would like one of my people to help. Now it's time to bring in the master. Please tell me you speak English. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? I don't want no partner, I don't need no partner, and I ain't gonna never have no partner. Did Kojak have a partner? Yeah, the fat guy. Did Columbo have a partner? Look, no, 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 no. You put your own bag in the back. I'm not a sky cat. Ah, bitch boy. Oh, hell no. Okay, so yeah, Rush Hour is our next movie from 1998. Uh, if you want to join in the conversation at home and check it out, before our next episode, then you can catch it for rental on places like Apple TV and Chili, but you can also get it on other services like Amazon, Sky. If it's out on physical media or on any sort of television services, then check it out and uh, see what our opinions are on on that film next time. So yeah, thank you, Ed. That's uh, Again, it is a variation in the type of uh, genre that uh, that we've been covering, especially lately. So thank you. What what is your connect- like? What, what's your connection to that? What, why did you choose that? I just love all the Rush Hour films and uh, just, just watching them you know, fairly recently in the last year or so. And, and also I, I found out that uh, apparently, well, it's the sort of thing where they've been talking about it for the last 10 years. So we don't know at what stage it actually is, but it looks like there might be a Rush Hour 4. So I think noticing that sort of led me to go back to the Rush Hour films and re- realise that it was a film I w- might want to bring up here as a, as, as a fellow buddy cop movie. Exactly the same sort of film as Stephen. Right? <laughs> yeah, I like that connection as well in terms of like the contrast of buddy cops. But uh, yeah, feels like they do need that in terms of like Bad Boys had their kind of like, you know, much weighted sequels. So it'd be good if uh, they had a return. So yeah, Rush Hour is our next movie. Jake, obviously you didn't get your decision, but uh, what was your film so we can put it into that stack? Well, this film is like, I think you've covered, it's a horror film, and I think you've covered horror before, but more classic horror. Today, we, we covered it today, I Not think. Today. I swear to God, David. <laughs> Not today, but I actually, having looked through your the films that you covered, I don't think you've covered any modern horror, and especially this one, which was so impactful, and influenced Seven, and that is, that was already mentioned earlier, The Silence of the Lambs. Uh, That's why course, I said the lead yeah. character is played by a Welshman. Yes, okay. Yeah, maybe The Science of the Lambs will appear in the future. That's how Seven got chosen today, a very famous David Fincher film. So a very famous staple of horror might get chosen randomly in the future. So thank you both uh, for joining us. Thank you, Jake, for your suggestion there. And thank you, Ed, for uh, our next movie. It's been loads of fun talking all about this uh, dark thriller, (laughs) uh, which uh, has now made its place in the movie vault. And uh, yeah, we've had loads of fun. Guys, where can we catch you? Uh, any projects, any socials you want to plug? Jake, what, what have you got going on? You know, it's been great coming on the show. Um, it's been a long time since I've been on and to discuss one of my favorite movies. Thanks for inviting me on, guys, and I hope to come on again soon. Uh, and yeah, um, you can check out the podcast I'm not always on, but I'm on when I can, and that's the Monday Lorians that I do with uh, my fellow co-host Dave and our friend Niall, where... Currently, we're discussing The Bad Batch Season 2, and we'll be discussing The Mandalorian Season 3, so catch us on there. We're available on all 
podcast platforms you get us from. Uh, and that's about it. I have to plug because I'm staying. As I said, I'm staying away from online and I don't intend to come back anytime soon. <laughs> so you've been that scared by um, by the new Twitter takeover. <laughs> Well, I left. I left prior to the takeover, but since the takeover, I'm like, I don't know if I want to come back. This just solidifies it <laughs> yeah. even more. But yes, thank you guys for joining us. Been a great discussion today. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you can catch us, of course, on uh, all the socials and wherever you listen to us. Then please do give us a like or thumbs up. And uh, you can also catch me as well. This is a little plug for a collaboration on most of Well Good Movies in which I was invited on the Cinematique podcast, which is Cinema T-I-Q-U-E, which is hosted by our fellow uh, podcaster now and previous guest, Reese Beaumont, also known as Rio's Positive POV. Um, I got to go on there and talk all about how Well Good Movies was set up and how it links to, you know, my love of film and when I was, you know, making films and writing about them and all that kind of stuff. Go check that out there. Do you, uh, do, do you mention me on that <laughs> podcast, David? I did, but uh, an internet connection thing meant it kind of sounded like... Conveniently. <laughs> sounded like Don. my friend Donald. Me and my friend Donald do this podcast. <laughs> I mentioned it at the end again, so I'm assuming the little breakup thing at the Oh, start. you didn't tell me that when you told me I'm about- assuming. I've only heard the Donald bit. I don't know about the end of it. But <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, anything lastly to add, Donald? Let's <laughs> talk like that means you'll be in the box next. <laughs> right, well... Uh, Thank you guys once again for joining us. And uh, yeah, catch us next time on our discussion of Rush Hour. Thank you very much and goodbye. Bye. It's not horror. To keep up with the latest episodes of Well Good Movies, you can listen to us on all your usual podcast outlets, including Apple, Google, Spotify, YouTube and more. Don't forget to follow us, subscribe and rate us where you can to keep our podcast growing. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at WellGoodMovies to keep up with the latest news and highlights from all our episodes, as well as tell us what movies you want to be discussed in the future. And if all of that isn't enough, you can also find us at our website freshtakehub.com slash wellgoodmovies where you can catch all our episodes along with videos and articles deep diving into the worlds of film and television. So what are you waiting for? Go check out the film we'll be discussing in next time's episode.